The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, KUCI.org on the web. Here's welcome to Privacy Piracy. We have a great show tonight because guess what? We're in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's beautiful. I'm looking at a teepee, and I'm looking at Lloyd and a whole group of privacy officers and privacy experts from around the country. We're at the Responsible Information Management Renaissance Weekend, which is the annual program put on by the Poneman Institute. And, and you know that we've interviewed Larry Poneman, who is the CEO and founder of the Poneman Institute, which is a privacy research uh, nonprofit group. So we're going to be interviewing people today from various uh, companies. Sound like a good idea? Something different? Why not? Okay. I've show before, but. Okay. But I'd love you to introduce yourself. All right. We are sitting here with David Bender. He's been on our show before. We love him. He's great. He's sitting here next to the teepee. David, why don't you introduce yourself, what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Good to be here, Mari. Uh, I head the privacy practice at a law firm called White & Case, which is a relatively large firm. We have uh, 36 offices in 24 countries. Uh, and for the past seven years, I've been specializing in privacy law. Well, I know you've been terrific work. So thrilled to have you here. So what are the key issues for privacy, for um, in privacy, for companies? For, for the types of companies that we tend to advise, which are large global companies, the issues are international ones, often posed more by foreign law than by U.S. law, especially by law in the European Union. The European Union has, uh, in general, stricter privacy laws than the United States does, and they affect things, for example, such as uh, the ability of a company to transfer its personal information out of the EU into the U.S., and that is causing major problems. Well, what kind of problems does it cause? Well, uh, for example, suppose a company, a global company, has been maintaining its human resources database in Massachusetts, and now all of a sudden they find, uh, even though they have employees, perhaps thousands and thousands of employees in the EU, that they may not be able to bring their human resources data for those employees back to their main HR database. Mm. This could uh, really throw a monkey wrench into the works. Wow. So what does privacy mean to you? There's lots of definitions. People think of it as, you know, hey, you know, I want my private privacy in my home so that no one can come into my home. But what does it really mean to you in this crazy information age? Yeah, there are a lot of defin definitions <clears throat> of it floating around. I, I tend to go back in the first instance to the most basic definition that I know of, and that was one that was... Uh, uh, proposed by two fellows named Warren and Brandeis. Brandeis later became a Supreme Court Justice, and this was in an 1890 article published in the Harvard Law Review, and they defined privacy simply as the right to be left alone. Right. So how does that translate nowadays? Yeah, it's not an easy translation. Uh, you know, we have uh, 
uh, all kinds of laws in all kinds of countries, and many companies have decided that they want to go beyond what the law requires because they believe that in some instances enhanced privacy is a marketing tool. Right. So when we opt out of privacy notices and we don't want our information to be sold, we're, we're really trying to take control of our private information. So does that, that kind of definition, the right to control our information, does that get included in this right to be left alone? I think that's part of it. It's a complex equation these days, uh, especially in the electronic age. You know, uh, I think things changed very significantly when files, instead of typically being kept in manual form and in, in human readable form all the time, became kept uh, much more frequently in these massive electronic databases that the government and, and corporations have now. Right, with all these massive databases, they can be transferred in a nanosecond and everybody else starts sharing and, and combined, buying yeah, yeah, and right. selling and, and so our, our information is really a commodity. Yeah, information is a commodity today and in many instances a very valuable one. So who owns it? Who owns my information? If my information is sitting in American Express and my information is sitting in the Bank of America, wh who owns this information? Who owns it? Uh, you know, ownership is a matter of law. And who owns it depends on the particular laws that attend to it. And who owns it in one country won't necessarily be the same as who owns it in another country. Wow. So in Europe, is it more like the, the people themselves own their information and in our country it's the companies who hold the, the data? Well, yeah, as a generalization, I think that's not a bad way of breaking it down, but there are, uh, you know, a lot of uh, bells and whistles you'd have to put on it to make that a completely accurate statement. But you're, yeah, I think you're right in, in concept. Hmm. So we're here at the Poneman Institute and we're talking about responsible information management. And we have companies like Microsoft, Hewlett-Packard, you know, all the biggies. And what in the world is responsible information management to you? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, <laughs> I guess one definition would be information management that doesn't get anybody mad at you. <laughs> and if somebody handles my information in a responsible way, does what does that do for me? I mean, do, what does that do for the company? Well, one thing it could do for the company is uh, to put the company higher on your list of companies that you would like to do business with. And some companies are focusing on that. And I think I mentioned that some companies are using privacy as a marketing tool and, in fact, uh, imprinting the data they have with more privacy than the law requires. Right. I know for me, when, when I have a company that respects my privacy and they're responsible, then I'm going to trust them. I want to do business with them. Like you said, you know, that, that's what builds my, my belief that they're going to take care of me and do you know, good customer service and um, just making sure that they're respecting my information. Trust certainly is a key to responsible information management, yes. Right, and, and that's really a lot of what we're talking about. So when, what, are company, what should companies do today? Because, you know, we have people driving by that are companies in Newport Beach. What should they be doing? How would you advise them as, as legal counsel to, and I know this is huge, but what are some of the big issues in protecting companies, uh, protecting privacy of not only the outside um, clients and customers, but also their employees? Yeah. Well, different companies are doing different things. Uh, and, you know, the first thing they've got to do is, is find out what the law is with regard to their own information related activities. 
and, and the next thing they've got to do is decide whether they're going to comply with the law, and I hope they are going to a hundred percent, but a lot of companies, especially with regard to EU activities, have decided that they're not going to comply one hundred percent because they believe in, uh, that complete compliance would be so cumbersome. Um, now let's go back because some people that are on the university campus may not know what you mean by EU, the European Union. Yeah. So what are some of the issues that that many companies don't want to do that the European Union is putting pressure on them to do that they're refusing to do? Yeah. There have been some areas where the uh, EU data protection laws conflict with U.S. law. Uh, I'll give you a couple of current ones right now. One is the Sarbanes-Oxley Act uh, in the United States that requires uh, anonymous whistleblower hotlines uh, in connection with accounting and auditing fraud. Uh, and there are a number of EU nations that have taken the position that an anonymous hotline uh, conflicts with their data protection laws. So that's one area. Another area is where some U.S. governmental agencies, such as the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission, serve subpoenas on U.S. company that call for the production of data that's kept in the EU. Uh, and the, again, the, uh, in a number of EU countries, the data protection authorities have taken the position that the European, that their own laws uh, conflict with that and do not permit the, uh, the transmittal of that data to the U.S. authorities. So what does that do to the businesses? Do they not work with each other, or is it just a big conflict, or what happens when there's that kind of tension? When there's that kind of tension, uh, there's a good deal of, uh, of talking among lawyers for each side in an attempt to work it out. I think the whistleblower matter is likely to be worked out. The, uh, the subpoena issue, I think, may be a more difficult one. We'll just have to see what's going to happen. So until those things are worked out, they can't do business with each other? Oh, yeah, they can do business with each other. They can do business. They just have to be very careful about what they do or don't do with their data. And the companies, many of which are based in the United States, are not able to get the data back. They're not able to do what they'd like with it. Oh, I see. So they just don't have the use of that data. So but what they have they have the use of it in the EU, but getting it back to oh, the US to the could States. be yeah, could be a yeah. different story. So what are the, the major challenges here with privacy in the information age? I think one of the big challenges is balancing privacy against other interests. Uh, the EU approach has been one of looking at privacy as though it's paramount and need not be balanced against other interests in, in most of the EU countries. The U.S. approach has always been one of trying to balance things against each other so that, uh, you know, nothing is, is really paramount. Uh, there are interests here, there are interests there. We're, let's find out a way where we can work with both of them. So the U.S. approach, I think, has, has been one that was less restrictive of what you can do with information than the EU approach. I think in the United States we will be seeing some federal privacy legislation probably in a year or so. Well, let's go back to the, that balance. Do you mean balance between marketing and, and um, privacy? Is that what you're talking about, like balancing the various interests? Because we're a very entrepreneurial country. Yeah. And so what are some of those things that, that have to be balanced? One thing that uh, typically gets balanced in the United States uh, whenever any kind of a statute or any kind of a law is proposed is how cumbersome it's going to be to comply with that law. Okay. And sometimes 
you reach the point where even though a law has a, you know, has good intent and would have good effect, if it's too cumbersome, uh, then maybe it's not a good idea to enact it for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that companies that uh, will in fact comply with it are going to have to load on a great deal of additional expense and pass that on to, to their customers, and maybe you don't want that to happen. Right, they can't and, be competitive yeah, then, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And another reason is uh, if it's too cumbersome, maybe you're going to have lots and lots of companies who won't comply with it. And yeah. in fact, that's what's happening in the EU. They have very strong laws, but when it comes to the data export laws, for example, I think fewer than 10% of the companies exporting data actually comply with those laws. Mm. So in, in, if it's so cumbersome, some of these laws in, in the EU, um, is there a lot of non-compliance, at least within their own countries, of following their own laws? Yes. Oh, there is. Yes. So is there any enforcement going on over there? Yes. There's a lot of enforcement in, in absolute terms. There, are, there have been thousands and thousands of fines levied by the various EU data protection authorities. But if you compare that to what's going on, it's just a, so far pretty much a drop in the bucket as to all the non-compliance that's going on. Wow. Now, in our country, the compliance is basically what, like the Federal Trade Commission? What are the, some of the agencies that, that enforce compliance here? The, the agency that we have in the United States that has taken the lead in enforcing privacy has been the Federal Trade Commission, but in the U.S., uh, it's not only agencies that get involved because we are a litigious nation and there are a lot of private lawsuits that are brought and some of them are brought in the privacy area. So whenever a company uh, runs afoul of a U.S. privacy law, they have to, you know, if they know they're running afoul, they have to have it in the back or the front of their head uh, that, you know, we could get sued and that could cost us a lot of money. So that is one restraining factor on doing outrageous things in the United States. Right. You know, the other night you and I were sitting at dinner with some people from other companies and there was a company that does audits and um, the, the privacy officer explained to us something that just shocked the heck out of me and I know you were found that interesting too when she talked about the fact that outsourcing when American companies are outsourcing to China and other places um, even though they think they're saving money in the, in the long run what's really happening is that they're giving away their trade secret, secrets which because there's reverse engineering if they give away all their codes and all their other stuff. How is that affecting the, um, you know, the, inf the trade and the, you know, the, all, how the companies that you're working with when they do outsourcing? Yeah, this goes beyond what we think of as privacy into an area known as uh, proprietary information or trade secrets. Right. It's, it's part of what's today called intellectual property. And in outsourcing, often a good deal of intellectual property will be outsourced. And as you know, many of the outsourcings today go outside the United States right. to India or China in particular. Uh, their intellectual property laws are not the same as ours. In general, they're not as strong as ours, at least at the enforcement level. Uh, they have taken efforts in recent years to enact statutes that approach uh, what we would consider reasonable, but they don't yet have enforcement mechanisms in place. They don't have the same kind of independent bar and independent courts that we have in the United States. And for that reason, even though they may have a law that covers a particular type of conduct, it may be effectively impossible to, to enforce right. that law. And even when people you know, sign confidentiality agreements, that doesn't seem to hold up, does it? Well, it can. Uh, you know, you may be able to get it uh, enforced in a foreign country, but 
overall, I would say you're less likely to get it enforced there than you could if it were being sued on in the United yeah. States. It's another, even though it's on intellectual property, these people, these companies think that that's a private, that's private information too, their intellectual property. So it's another form of privacy. Yeah, and you know, that's an interesting point. These large databases now are being thought of as, as a corporate asset, you know, databases of customer information, for example, as a corporate asset. And, right. and in fact, maybe a, a part of the universe of intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, you've got databases for codes, you've got databases for humans, you've got databases for all sorts of information, and just the fact that it can be transferred so easily and acquired by unauthorized people so easily, you know, with, with what we've talked about, security breaches. Yeah, when, when you, I should mention that whenever you're in, in an outsourcing situation, you have to have a very good contract in place that uh, imposes these regulate these, these restrictions on your contracting partner and uh, you would try to get a situation where your contracting partner had assets in the United States and you'd get a clause in that agreement that permitted you to sue in the United States uh -huh. uh, so that if there were some kind of a disclosure or other breach of that agreement you could sue in the United States and, and they wouldn't be judgment proof if you won your suit they would have the means to pay off the judgment and that in turn I think uh, you know, as a signal to them that, that they better watch out. Right, right. It's very expensive to, to litigate that kind of thing, though, isn't it? It's, it's expensive to litigate in the United States. Yeah, yes, it is. yeah. You know, one of the other things that, I, that I've heard you say, now you're from New York and I'm from California, and here we are, at the, you know, broadcasting at the University of California in Irvine, and one of the things that I heard you say that I absolutely loved was when you were talking about the California security breach law, you said it has the incredible impact. I wish you would just explain what you meant by that, because I think people in California should be so proud of the law that they passed because it has had incredible impact. And what kind of impact has that had? Yeah, well, for those of you who are not familiar with that statute, what it says, in essence, is that if a company uh, discovers that information that it owns, personal information that it owns, has come into unauthorized hands, then... Uh, and it's it, unencrypted. Yeah, and it's unencrypted. That's right. It, it does, the statute does not apply to an encrypted information. Then the company has to disclose that fact to all the affected individuals. And now, while I... I have some problems with a few of the details of that California statute. I think that concept is just a, a great one. I think it's the best kind of statute I have seen in the privacy world. And I think that over the last two years, it has had a greater effect on actual levels of privacy, certainly in the United States, than anything else I can think of. And I think privacy levels over the last two years have been significantly enhanced as a direct result of that statute. It's been copied now. Well, last time I looked, there were 31 other states that had Me Too statutes. And they're not all the same. Right. They, they are different in a number of respects. But California was the pioneer. That statute became effective on July 1st, 2003. And it has had a big effect. And if, if you read the newspapers, you've seen a couple of times a week across the front page about some new disclosure that some company uh, has been involved in. And the reason why you're reading this stuff is because of those statutes, primarily the California one. People ask me, is why are we having so many more security breaches now than we used to? And, and you know, the answer is we're really not. What we're having 
are many more disclosures of security breaches, and the difference has been that California statute. And it's had these these this unending stream of disclosures has had two uh, effects. First, it's getting privacy issues to higher levels in many more corporations. Now the CEO in many corporations is directly involved in privacy. Why? Because she or he doesn't want to see uh, her or his company's name splashed across the front page of USA Today in this context, and they're concerned about it. They want to be sure they've got the appropriate security in place. And secondly, it's getting more and more customers, individuals, uh, aware of the fact that there is a fragility with regard to the security of their personal information. They're making noise about it. The consumer groups are making noise about it. Congress hears this. There is more federal privacy legislation floating around in Congress now than there ever has been, by far, in the past. And I, w I would think that probably in a year or so we'll see some significant federal privacy legislation. I don't know what it's going to look like, yeah. but I think we're going to see some. And, and you know, you working with many companies, you, are you seeing them trying to develop better technology and better security to really um, protect that, that data so it doesn't get breached by unauthorized individuals? Yes, I think uh, some of them, I think, if they're big enough, try to develop the technology themselves. But what's happening, I think, for many of them is that they're becoming more aware of software that's out there that can help them in their efforts to maintain good security. Well, that's terrific. So we, we've um, to just ask another question. So what do you think is coming in the future for privacy? Well, I think we're going to see more and more attention paid to it in the United States. I hope that we're going to see uh, you know, more of a, of, of a debate with the European Union in an effort to come up with some reasonable rules that, uh, that will satisfy them and satisfy us. I can't say I'm particularly optimistic on that. But I sure would like to see that because I know that uh, the difference in rules uh, and especially the restrictions on cross-border transfer that the European Union nations generally have are causing major problems for the companies, many of the companies that I have to advise. Right now, most of the companies in this country are really global because you can be on the Internet. I know we sell information, you know, sell our books and stuff across across the world, you know, to yeah, yeah. Italy, to Canada, so any company can become a global company. If you're a one-shop operation located in, let's say, Santa Fe, New Mexico, right. <laughs> and you rely on credit card information coming out of the EU, you could have this problem, yeah. Exactly. So, finally, what kinds of uh, advice do you have for local businesses here in Newport Beach, Irvine, about privacy? If you were their legal counsel, what would you say to them about what to consider, even for just you know their domestic um, businesses and and their you know inter intercontinental business? Yeah, you know, one short answer to that that it really isn't bad is, is the old golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would be done unto you know, and um, the translation of that is. When you're dealing with personal information, handle it the same way you'd want your own personal information handled. Um, one thing I'd add to that is that they really should make sure they understand the law, because in different industries there are different uh, requirements for how you handle industry. So I'd say that the starting point is to understand the law, and the second uh, point is uh, even if the law 
would permit you to do it, be wary of doing things you wouldn't want done with your own personal information. Right. And for consumers and university students that are listening in as they're driving by, what, what suggestions do you have for them about privacy? Be alert. You know, see, uh, if uh, companies often will tell you uh, what they're doing with your information. You find it in the privacy statement that you can get into by double-clicking at the bottom of the home page. Uh, you find it in, in things that they send you in the mail, often uh, just about as, as a filler with a bill or, or with some other uh, advertising promotion. Read the stuff, think about it. If there are things in there you don't like, uh, talk to the company. Uh, many of them now have privacy officers. And if it bothers you enough and they're not going to change it, maybe you have to think about switching to another company. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time from the program this morning. We, we love you. We will have you back again and keep us informed as to what you're doing. And we'd love you to come back and move back to Newport Beach. Well, let, me, let me just wave to Lloyd over there. Yeah, and the engineer. Thanks for having me, Mary. Yeah. Take care. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled now because we are sitting in a teepee in Santa Fe. And we're sitting around a table with Larry Poneman and Susan Poneman, who are fantastic. Uh, we've had Larry, Dr. Larry Poneman, on the show several times before, but now we're here in Santa Fe at the Poneman Institute Responsible Information Management Renaissance. So, welcome, guys. Hey, nice thank to be you. here. Oh, yeah. It is so cool being in this teepee doing an interview. You're going to need to hold that closer oh, to your okay. mouth, and then you can give it to Susan, too, so we're sitting here, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's nice to be in this teepee doing an interview. This is a, a unique experience. It is a unique experience, and we're in the, the home of all of the area where there is you know, Indians and spirituality and yeah. peace and, and goodwill, and, and that's what we're learning about. So, Susan, why don't we get to get talk to you and tell us what you do for the Poneman Institute, because you haven't been on our show before. Well, what I, my responsibility is to work with Larry on research, which is really what, what I love to do. We, um, Poneman Institute conducts approximately 50 to 100 surveys, research studies uh, per year. Most of them are for the consumers. We want to find out from consumers what, they're, what they are worried about when it comes to privacy. And uh, these, what we learn from them is also very helpful to the companies we work for. Right. Because they want to be tuned into what are setting off the alarms in people's head about how their personal information is being handled. And you did a terrific job this weekend working very hard pulling it together and you thank you, you. it was yeah, terrific absolutely a wonderful job and thank you for making this happen this is year number four for us and each year it just gets a little bit better and so, we're just so glad to have you here by the way yeah my second year i'm thrilled oh it's wonderful Mari so, is a did did susan pick out the wine yeah, Susan picked out all the wine and she everything yeah, and, and all of the, the the dessert. I picked out the chicken for the <laughs> Yeah, and Lloyd loves it too, so he's he's our engineer joining us here. I, I forgot to have him say hi. I already did. Oh there. Okay. All right, so Larry, why don't you tell our listeners what this weekend really was about and the importance well, we, yeah, of it? We, we call this the Rim Renaissance Weekend. It's really about getting together a group of people who are interested in what we refer to as responsible information management. It's really the ethical use of data, data about people or their families. 
it's what privacy officers are supposed to do. They're supposed to care about this, not just because of laws and regulations, but because it's really important. We get together and we start talking about the big issues that influence the use of this data by government, by corporations. And what we're trying to get out of this is we're trying to come up with a framework that could be implemented by organizations so that they can actually do it better. And we actually found that even in different industries, whether you're a bank or an airline or a pharmaceutical company, it's about 80% the same thing. 20% is uniquely defined for the industry, but 80% cuts across different types of organizations. So that's what these weekends are about. It's a way for people to share ideas, compare and contrast what they're doing, and to come up with a framework, hopefully, that advances the, you know, the football to the next stage. What I think is really exciting is we had some major companies here. Can you kind of list some of the names of these companies that were here? Sure. We have to be careful because of the confidentiality okay. that we promised, but we can definitely say that these are almost all Fortune 500 companies. The RIM Council, which started actually with six companies mm -hmm. uh, four years ago, and these are large companies, and we never really expected that it would grow to more than 50 corporations and a few governmental uh, agencies. And it's been very interesting to see how it's grown, and yet the, the, the culture and the esprit de corps and the way people come together hasn't really changed all that much. At the Rim Renaissance, we really like having no more than 30 people. If you get to about 100 or 200, yeah. it starts to look like a conference, and it's not cool anymore. It's not yeah. a lot of fun. I was so impressed the way you could get everybody to really open up and share ideas about privacy and responsible information management. You did a terrific job, as oh, usual. Thank you. You're a mediator in disguise. Oh, that I you know. are the mediator. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I learned from you, and you're so fabulous at these meetings. I mean, you have such a wonderful perspective. Well, I just come in with a kind of a different perspective since I'm not a privacy officer. Like you represent the consumer. You know, yeah. You're the consumer spokesperson. You care about these things, and people need to hear it. And that's really, really valuable. Well, thank you. Well, let's talk about what is, this is a great question you asked all of us in the sure. meeting, is what is responsible information management? And I thought that was a great question, and it, we all came up with different answers. So why don't you tell us what it means to you and what you're trying to impart sure. to us? Well, I think responsible information management is about the ethical use and sharing of information that is about people whether it's about you or about your family or about your home, that information is sacred information. Here we are in a teepee right. talking about sacred, but it's a sacred, it, it's, it's sacred. And, it, you, and there's a responsibility for an organization, whether it's government or business or just another individual, there's an obligation to keep that information safe and secure. So RIM is about the ethical responsibilities of organizations. And is there one common framework that can be applied and what could be done from a more of a tactical level to make these things work. That's what we're about. Right. You know, Larry, we were talking how that might be a little bit different than what the you know definition for privacy. So could you share with us what you think privacy is now in this information age? Yeah, privacy is one of these issues because it, it, there's a privacy about respecting the person's space. And this is something normally that doesn't get into the conversation. It's like when you're in a restaurant mm -hmm. and you're just wanting to spend time with your love, your husband, and, and and someone's on a cell phone talking loudly to if they're doing a sales deal or they're having a conversation with their buddy. It's so annoying. It's in your space. So that that feeling that if someone is violating your personal space is a very important part of privacy. Another aspect of privacy, and this is where privacy officers get involved, is about the use of information about you 
It's when information is collected, is that information used in appropriate ways, and if it's shared, is it shared in ways that are appropriate to you? And do you have a choice? You can have the ability to provide an, an opt-out or an opt-in. So that's really what privacy is. Privacy is about respecting the individual space and respecting the information that you collect about people. Right, right, yeah. Actually, there was another privacy issue that came up at dinner with a bunch of the people, and that was the privacy of intellectual property of, of the company, too. Oh, so yeah. that was another one that was really interesting, the way they, we were, you know, discussing that that's another privacy issue. Yeah, we, one of the, we're doing a study, and we'll, we'll share it with you in probably about two months. It's a study on what companies are doing to protect intellectual property, not just data about people or households, right. because what we find is that there's too much, too many silos. Too many different activities, these disparate activities are not really working together. So there may be a set of activities for managing the intellectual property and almost identical activities for managing data, customer data, or employee records. And IP, intellectual property, if that's in the wrong hands, if that's in the hands of a competitor or a, cri or a, cr a criminal organization, you are just out of business. You're out to lunch. And so it's very important, and that's a different aspect of what privacy officers right. are starting to consider. Privacy is so strange now in this, you know, oh, yeah. and everything's so changing so much, and we talked about that this weekend. I'd like to talk a little bit with Susan about some of the research that you've done and how you do it, because that is fascinating. You've done some incredible studies. In fact, when Larry was on last time, we talked about several of your studies. So can you talk about some of the research you've done? And how? We, um, as we, I mentioned, we talk about, we um, survey consumers about their different perceptions for, about what's happening in their personal lives. For example, how they feel about surveillance, um, how they feel about their privacy when they're employed in the workplace. Um, other issues about, in fact, one of the most current issues is outsourcing of their personal information. And what are the countries that they most feel most confident in, in hand, having their information outsourced to by, by companies? For example, um, companies that when you apply for a mortgage or um, provide personal information, um, they want to know, understand where that information is being outsourced to. And it was surprising that India is actually uh, considered a very trustworthy country. And according also, Canada is also considered one of the more Canada is actually in first place. But first India place. was in India was in third place, which was very very interesting. And that could be just a factor that people are now comfortable because they understand that so many companies are outsourcing information and, and uh, different projects to India that uh, they feel that it's fairly secure. So how do you do the research? What exactly are are, are the techniques for doing this research? Well, we we have a great. Uh, deal of fun designing these surveys. You know, we'll we come up with an idea uh, that you know, wouldn't it be great to find out what people are thinking or what companies are thinking about this particular issue? Uh, we just finished a series of surveys on the whole issue of, around data breaches. You know, the notification, what how people want to be contacted if they're um, if their institution that handles their personal information has a data breach. Um, what happens, you know, in the inside of an organization in managing, what are companies doing now, what kind of processes are they putting in place to prevent and detect uh, a data breach. So basically what we identify a sample of people we um, survey, and then we do most of our surveys, it's very interesting, over the web, over the internet. 
and we find that um, it's, what's interesting is that um, we do get quite an excellent response from people who are now in the IT field and you know information technology. Yeah. They're very responsive and, and willing to share um, information about what's happening in their organization. And of course all the information we collect is um, co completely confidential. Um, we collect it and analyze it in the aggregate so there is we can't identify specific companies or individuals when we collect this information. You respect their privacy. Exactly. Yeah, we sure do. So, so tell me, uh, Larry, what what is the difference between privacy and security? Because that, that oh, one wow. was one that we kind of talked about this weekend yeah. a little bit. Well, you know, the, the privacy, in, in my mind, a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition to privacy, but a necessary condition is security. That in order to achieve good privacy, you have to have reasonable security. That's a given. So, for example, if a company has lousy security, but they give you notice and disclosure, you don't have privacy. But security, uh, unfortunately, can be great, and you could have lousy privacy. It could be a company that has great firewalls, but they do awful things with your data. You know, they don't care who they share it with, and they don't respect their own policies and procedures. Security is really about, from a, from a privacy perspective, it's really about the process for securing information. So data doesn't get out, get into the wrong hands. Data that is captured in the system is physically controlled. It's something that can be located, and, it, and records can be retained according to a policy. So one very important aspect that sometimes is overlooked in security is that you only collect what you need. And when it's over, when the data is no longer valuable, you don't just let it, you know, rot. <laughs> you, you basically get rid of it. And, and that, that record retention process is also a particularly important element from a privacy perspective. Right. So let me ask you, in this day and age, what are some of the real challenges that we're facing in privacy protection? Oh gosh, there are so many challenges. I think number one, the, the biggest challenge for a lot of organizations is just knowing where all the data is. It might seem like a weird statement here, but most organizations, even the best organizations, the one that achieved the highest Poneman Privacy Trust score, these organizations can't tell you with absolute precision whether or not you know data is residing, personal data is residing in different parts of the IT enterprise, or in other files, and even manual copies or printouts. So where does the data reside? Data at rest is very important because if you don't have that secured, even if you think you have great policies, you're going to be in a world of hurt. So that's one of the challenges. Where is all the data? Then number two is having a way of understanding how this data needs to travel and be used and navigating you know, where it's moving and where it's going and how it's going to be transformed and appended and reverse appended. All of those kinds of issues require you to understand data flows and data maps become very important. That's a big challenge. A challenge from a completely different perspective for the privacy officer is just understanding what the customer or what the employee wants. You know, we spend so much time on the technical aspects that we sometimes forget the psychological aspects. People care about their data, but they care about it in different ways. And you just can't assume that there is only one way of handling and treating data about people. You have to understand the preferences, and you have to hopefully get the permission from the data subject to use the data in ways that are appropriate for them. So there are a whole bunch of issues from technical to psychological to security to IT to all sorts of dimensions that the privacy officer has to deal with in order to be effective. Now that's part one. Now let me tell you the part two part of this okay. question. 
The part two is knowing the regulations. There are tons and tons of regulations. Some regulations actually conflict with privacy. So if you're a privacy officer, sometimes you're in, you know, the this little turmoil, like what regulation do I respect? A good example if you're in banking is there's the Bank Secrecy Act, which means that you must know your customer, which means that you're going to collect a lot of personal data about the customer, which means that you might actually collect data more than the data you need, which then violates your data minimization principle in your policy. Yep, when because I say, of the Patriot Act. Yeah, Patriot Act and just need to, to fight money laundering and, and or anti-terrorism. Right. So these kinds of issues are really tough issues for privacy officers because in order to obey one, they are basically violating another. And then I'm going to tell you the reality of international law. If you're a global company, some companies take a an approach where they are violating, they're going to violate the policy of a country because it's too costly, and they actually take a risk uh, stance that if they get caught, the penalty is actually lower than the cost of compliance. So uh -huh. some organizations actually deal with compliance in that way as well. I'm sorry, I'm going much. No, 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 you're doing fine. No, you're doing mm -hmm. fine. I just want to make sure I have time when I ask you that exciting question oh. at the end about the future. So he's supposed to always, so you never see this when you're on the radio. Oh, okay. He's giving me high signs, okay, <laughs> but right now we're in the, the TV together. Yeah, yeah, so he's. he's I feel like we should do a war dance. No, I think we should be passing the peace pipe. That's what we should be doing. I'm sorry about my singing audience. Okay. <laughs> well, she's going to sing for no, us? I'm no, I'm not <laughs> Don't put her no, on this okay. spot. No, you're so terrific. Okay, so so let me ask you something about the privacy officers. You know, we're, we're sitting, well, we're not sitting right now, but when, when we play this, you know, yeah. we are going to be at the university, and we're going to have people who might say, gee, privacy officer, what? that's kind of a new... Uh, position in companies and a lot of the big companies and government are requiring privacy officers so you meet with privacy officers most of the people there this weekend were privacy officers what is the role of the privacy officer and and what are their challenges in dealing with other people within the organization yeah, well, that's a great question because the privacy office, not the officer, but the function of a privacy of, of the privacy as a business function is relatively new. Now in Europe, for many, many decades, there are data protection officers because it's required by law, but in the United States it's a new position. The chief privacy officer, the head of that function, is responsible for developing a policy and, and executing on that policy, making sure that the privacy commitments that an organization has to its various stakeholders are being met. Sometimes the privacy office focuses only on the customer and consumer, and HR focuses more on the employee. But in the companies, that I think the best-in-class companies, privacy is one, there's one voice for privacy. And it may be coordinated with HR and other departments, but there's really one person where you know, the buck stops with him or her, and that's the chief privacy officer. Now this role is an interesting role because it's the chief privacy officer. You presume it's reporting to like maybe the CEO, but very few CPOs report to the chief executive officer. In most cases, they report either through corporate law or they report through corporate compliance or they're starting to report through other interesting places like the ethics office, um, the sustainability functions in an energy company, corporate IT. So the CPO has a role that is pretty well defined, 
but depending upon who you report to can actually change the scope and complexity of your work. There are some very interesting CPOs. It seems like more women than men are CPOs, whereas more com in the computer security field, it's definitely dominated by men. And I just basically find that that's one interesting issue. A second interesting issue about CPOs is that a lot of CPOs are not lawyers. Some are, but some are folks who work in marketing, corporate marketing, have worked in call centers like Barbara Lawler at Intuit, um, Janet Chapman at uh, Charles Schwab, probably violating their privacy by telling you about them, but they have very, very interesting backgrounds. Um, uh, Charles Giordano at Bell Canada. These are people that are not lawyers, but they understand data and they understand the, the, the customer. Um, the new privacy chief at HP, Scott Taylor, someone you definitely want to speak with. He is someone who understands the customer experience, and because of that background, he's wonderfully positioned to be the privacy leader. So, anyway, that's my little spiel. Yeah, it, it seems to me that a company in which the CEO um, allows the privacy officer to report to them would really have a greater sense of privacy and probably be more committed. I agree. Definitely true, and not every organization has a privacy officer. And I don't know if it's a one-to-one -one correlation. Sometimes you'll get a privacy officer that is now there because of a law. Like they were part of an FTC. Uh, I'm sorry about the background noise. It's a Harley. <laughs> a really cool Harley behind us. But, but I think that the, the, so there are privacy officers that have the title and may not have the responsibility, but there are some excellent privacy officers. Um, and then there are companies that just get incredibly good marks for privacy, like U.S. Bank and the banking industry. They have a wonderful privacy leader, a guy by the name of Dan Burks. So sometimes, you know, it seems like you see where a good company, one that's very well respected, has a privacy leader that has very high level reporting responsibility and really does a good job. What were some of the companies that, that were on top? And you, you had some ratings that yeah. from your surveys, you want to kind of share that? Sure. And, and governmental agencies too? Yeah, and the government, the number one, a number one seems to be the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, USPS. and I met her. And yeah, I, she's Emily Andrews and Zoe Strickland, these people are phenomenal. But I think the reason is that the post office is like an institution we know so well. We, we expect the mailman you know, him or her to, to deliver our mail in a way that's responsible. It's the only point of contact that we have with people sometimes. I know my mother gets all excited. Oh, the mailman's here. Great, I can talk. I can share cookies. But so mailmen, there's a sense of like one-to-one -one that you'd never get in government. And you can imagine having that with the IRS, like they come to your house. Yeah, oh, great, cookies. No way. No, but, but all kidding aside, because I know I'm on the radio now the IRS is listening. But, but the reality is that it's that one-to-one -one relationship that makes just an enormous difference. Well, you know, I think there's something else, though. You know, what I've noticed over the years, back in 1996, the, the U.S. Postal Inspector, um, was not real helpful with identity theft victims and because of the mail being involved in, in every identity theft mail has to be involved yeah. because they have to change the address there's always the mail and they have really taken the lead and I think that has a lot to do with it is that right in Washington the postal inspector has really put a huge emphasis on identity theft, and they have done they've done the best. Yeah, and I think that's probably something to do with it because privacy and identity theft are related, like a horse and carriage. Yeah, absolutely. I think identity. When we think about a big privacy snafu in our life, it's about identity. 
even though the rate of identity theft may not be like 100%, the fear of identity theft is getting to 100%. I think right. we all have it back in front or back or middle of our brain right. the, the knowledge that someone is going to steal our identity and make uh -huh. our life a living hell. Right. And so the postal, the being and the, on the good side of that, you know, being associated with you know, fighting the bad guys, right. that really is great positioning. And another factor is I think the privacy team at USPS has made it a big issue. You know, when they achieved their number one status, um, I went to D.C. and I met with their privacy team. I also met with the leadership of the USBS, and they were just so excited about it because they realized that this was not just about privacy, it was about trust. Yes. And when they felt that they were getting this great trust level and esteem from the public, that was a real accomplishment. And it really was nice, you know, to see their website, you know, what are their top ten accomplishments, number four or ten, whatever it was, yeah. the most trusted for privacy among governmental organizations. That was a big deal for us, and we're just delighted. And yeah. they, they, and you know, it's interesting, they were, like I mentioned the IRS jokingly, but they get good marks for privacy. <laughs> they, they did. I know they had a couple of big issues recently. Yes. And then the VA, ironically, had got very good marks for oh privacy. My. Really? Not, Even after all the breaches? No, this is before. Oh, okay. Not anymore. <laughs> we, we will share the new data, but that breach has just been devastating yes. their trust, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Army and the Navy, and yeah. it's been, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. Although, in Congress right now, they're going crazy in they terms of Trump. Bill, they all have a bill, don't the Hillary Clinton privacy bill. Yeah. That was an interesting bill. Yeah. But I think over time, we're going to, you know, we'll see laws that will make it harder organizations to just squeak by. Mm -hmm. I also think from a positive side, American Express, you know, they always do well. In the pharmaceutical industry, Johnson & Johnson, um, let's see, it was J&J, &J, it was Pfizer did very well, you know, John Paul Hamm, um, Wyeth Pharmaceutical, Merck, and I Eli think, Lilly. and this was an interesting one, Eli Lilly. Remember Eli Lilly yes. with the big privacy Big thing happened. Glitches. They put a lot of resources into privacy, and now they're just they are viewed in a very positive way. Well, don't you think that's that's really the case? I remember yeah. after uh, years ago when Chase had a big snafu with the Federal Trade Commission, all of a sudden they were one of the first companies to have a privacy officer and really take the lead. Look at Choice Point. Choice Point had this horrible problem, and then they got Carol D. Batiste, and they've really done tremendous work so I think sometimes work. if you get burnt like yeah. that you really take the lead and, and I think that's they have to yeah they have to I mean I think of choice point as a great example they have an organization that it's all about trust they sell right. the businesses they want to be associated with good companies and Carol is doing just a terrific job in changing the, the culture exactly. and I think over time that becomes an exemplar so. right right so what do you recommend to companies and how to Okay, Lloyd's giving me a high sign here. I got okay. another high five. <laughs> hey. All right, peace. well, you know, he keeps changing on me. This is why when I sit there when you hear me on the radio, you don't know what he's doing. Know, I'm like making know, faces this like time. Faces. This, is, this is a new experience. Right. Well, I'm going to ask you a, a short question, and then we're going to get into the, about the future. Oh, you got it. Okay, and what was I asking before Lloyd so uh, interrupted me? <laughs> okay, never mind. I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to ask the question about the future because okay. I know that we're sitting in this teepee and I know that we have a crystal ball here and Larry is magical and can create the magical future. Larry <clears throat> and Susan. Because what we're going to tell... We're, these Both are of you can tell me. Yeah, yeah. These, are, these are really like crystal balls. So for your audience, there's probably some empirical support, but it's mostly prediction based on gut. Okay. based on talking to a lot of people. 
if you ask the average, we, we do a man and woman on the street study, which is not a scientific study, but it's a fun study. We ask people, what do they care about? And the number one issue in the last six or seven months is the telephone story, the wireless phone and someone just talking loudly and, 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 and really not respecting a, pers a person's sense of personal space, you know, violating that space. So I think that we're going to start to see technologies that will make it easier for people to say, because it's embarrassing to me, please tone it down, will you please hang up, you're annoying. So yeah. we'll probably see some technologies that will kind of make it harder for people to do that. And I could see even like a telecom company, like a wireless company, actually using that as positioning, you know, saying, look, we're the company that respects you. <laughs> when we sell you a phone, we give you this, this community standard. That So I think that that's definitely going to be on the radar screen. Another and then, you know, another thing, which we're sitting here in, in New Mexico, and when we got off the plane, they told us, and we rented our car, they said, you cannot use your cell phone while you're driving unless you have hands-free. Did you notice that? Yeah, they Santa Fe. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, I said, in New Mexico. No, it's Santa Fe. Oh, it's oh Santa, Santa Fe? Santa Fe? <laughs> oh, wow. I thought it was, I, I thought I read <clears throat> in the magazine that you couldn't, in the whole state, see, they I, passed I, a lot. See, see, I wear a motorcycle helmet when I drive my car, so this is nothing. I'm just joking. <laughs> 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 yeah. Audience, I'm joking. Yeah, this well, you know what, I don't know anymore, <laughs> no. because he's I grown mean, a beard now, I and know. I don't recognize so, the old Larry. Some <laughs> old Larry, yeah, it's not going to last very long. But, but, here, but the, the reality is, though, that I think that as people get annoyed, it changes the technology, so there will be technology that makes it harder to make it annoying for people. You know, it's almost like in Maxwell Smart. Do you remember Get Smart? They had the cone of silence. Where yeah. When you talk, <laughs> I can see that. The cone of silence. <laughs> Another tool. <laughs> you have to be, what, at least 50 to remember that. Maybe 45. <laughs> I don't remember. Actually, in your case, like you're 22. So yeah, you sure. Don't remember. Yeah, uh huh. But. But, so that's that's definitely something. Another a crystal ball issue, I think, and, and, and a more serious issue, is that there are going to be more and more social networking sites, you know, like MySpace and Facebook. There will be tools that bring people together on the internet, not just like an eHarmony.com, but dating tools, but things that bring people together to one place. And that's going to be really good. People will love it. But there will be predators and evil things will happen to people. And I think there will be technologies that will make it really hard to do you know, violate a community standard, like use it for child pornography or predator, predatory behavior on the internet. But definitely that's going to change privacy. That will be a big issue. I think another big issue, this is probably five years, ten years down the road, we're going to realize that it's impossible to solve medical privacy problems with big systems. So we're going to have all of our medical records on a chip that will be probably implanted in you and mm. us. And we will have these to this chip, and God forbid, you know, we get hit by a truck, it's there. Right. Or when we go to the doctor, the doctor will have a special scanning device that will read it. And so our, all these records, not just medical, it could be employee records and pay records, it will be actually on us, it will be in us. It won't be a biometric, it will be a chip that actually contains information. And Maybe hopefully there will be safeguards so I that pray. if I, you know, I, that's Can the you biggest if it's scary Microsoft, stuff. though, like, I don't know, I don't want to hurt my, my <laughs> friends at Microsoft, but it has to be over technology that doesn't break. Like, because if it breaks, it's in you. It's a little different, right? Right. You have to go for major you know, brain surgery as a result of a defect in the chip. Right. But these are the kinds of things that we're going to see. I think another big Do you think that the technology will be there to safeguard it so that, for example, if I want to get a new job, they won't look at my health records and see yeah. that I had cancer five years ago and I, they're not going to hire me? You know, it, it's I'm an scared of that stuff, yeah, Larry. I, I, I'm, I, there, there's a basic... This is 100 years ago, at least, 
my case. When I was a graduate student, I had a course when I, I went to Harvard in graduate school, and it was this course, it was called The Psychology of Secrecy. And it was taught by a, a professor, his name was John Schlein, and I pray he's still alive, but then he was about 80 years old, and it was 100 years ago. <laughs> and John was the, uh, I worked for OSS, and the, 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 the um, predecessor to the CIA, I think, during World War II. And he developed this whole theory that people can't keep a secret. It's, it goes against the human experience. We have to tell someone, otherwise we blow up. And I think that's what we see in privacy in the internet, that more and more people are looking to reveal something about themselves. And they feel safe on the internet, in a kind of a public space. But I think that it's going to create a whole bunch of issues where some companies will exploit it and other companies will be there to protect you. They answer your question in a roundabout way, will there be enough safeguards? And the answer is no. I think mm. whatever we do think we're controlling today, we're not going to control it well enough. There will be, a, you know, the first group of people who use that technology will be, you know, at great risk. And then, as the problem gets serious, and as seriously deranged people start manipulating the system, we will find that there needs to be more control. The problem with control is that actually, in order to have perfect control, it leads to a reduction of our sense of civil liberty. Know, that our, 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 our private space is, has to be violated, unfortunately, in order to have these controls. So it's going to be a real social and ethical trade-off in the future as this technology becomes a little bit more pervasive. And, and, and privacy is so fascinating because it's changing so much and the whole paradigm, we're going through an entire paradigm shift. Oh, yeah. and, and the university students who are listening to us right now are saying, I use MySpace all the time. What are you guys worried about? You know? So what if they put a chip in me? That's a great idea. Or then I don't have to worry about remembering all my passwords. I just put my chip in, you know? Yeah, so it's, it's scary. Chip. How are we doing? What? We're wrapping up? We're wrapping okay. <laughs> no, well, I, I think you are a great soothsayer. Is that what they call them? And um, we appreciate so much all of your time. Oh, and Larry, you have you. to come back couple times a year with Susan to yeah, talk about all the research that you're doing and um, I, I kind of hope you're wrong about all the people who are going to have the fallout from some of this I technology. Hope I, I hope I'm wrong too. I, I, I really am not going to be the first one to put a chip in my body. Yeah, I'm so. not going to be the first person. I'll be the last person actually. Yeah, too. me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much for oh, joining us you. and you are wonderful. You've you been, are wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You've been listening to Privacy Piracy, wonderful Larry and Susan Poneman. We're in Santa Fe. Thank you, Lloyd. And good night. See you next Wednesday at 5 to 6 p.m. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.